This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Welcome to all of you. Thank you for joining us. One might assume that the rape of a 17-year-old seamstress in revolutionary New York City of 1793 by a well-connected gentleman would be lost to the winds of time and certainly would not have resulted in not one but two trials and riots. Sadly, what were issues then? Did the girl encourage him? Was it consensual? Did she scream loud enough? Still exists today. But filing under what was called a seduction law, the case takes on a modern possibility of restitution. Add in vibrant historical facts about New York City streets and architecture and the ramifications of the Revolutionary War, and you have a story that is riveting, revealing, and eye-opening about those times in that place. John Wood Sweet, in writing The Sewing Girl's Tale, a story of crime and consequences in revolutionary America, brings his skill as a professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and his specialty in the social and cultural histories of race, gender, and sexuality to resurrect the life of Lana Sawyer, bringing us a book I couldn't put down and a story that will long linger in your mind. John, welcome to Just the Right Book, and I appreciate your joining us as you welcomed a new baby to your family on Saturday. So this is this is yeoman's effort for you to be here. Thank you for doing that. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. I've been such a fan of your stores for a long time. So, John, let's start with just sort of setting the stage. Describe for us 1793 New York City. So New York City in 1793 was tiny and tumultuous. We think today of New York as this sprawling metropolis of like 9 million people. And in 1793, it was a town of about 40,000. Almost everybody lived within an easy walk of each other on the southern tip of the island. Pretty much everybody lived below what is now City Hall. And above that was just farmland. It was an anxious time in the city. There was fear in the fall of 1793 of a yellow fever epidemic that was coming up the East Coast and had already infected Philadelphia. In fact, one in 10 people in Philadelphia died of yellow fever that fall. It was a time of mounting international tension as the British and the French were at war following the French Revolution. And both sides were trying to bring the United States into that international war. And partisans on both sides were factions of Democrats, so-called Democrats and so-called aristocrats were rioting and fighting with each other in the city. When Noah Webster, a good Connecticut Yankee, arrived to New York that fall, he was horrified to hear chants of Viva la Revolution and down with King Washington from radical Democrats in, in New York. Mm. So it was a tense, tense moment in this small town that was New York in 1793. And Lana Sawyer, who is the young 
17-year-old seamstress that is the center of the story. What was her background and what would a 17-year-old working class woman of that age been like? What would she have considered her prospects? How would she have operated? Yeah, I spent a lot of time trying to understand Lana Sawyer's background because one of the basic questions I had was, how did she get the gumption, the courage to stand up for herself after being assaulted? And I came to a couple different conclusions about that. The the fact of the matter is that Lana Sawyer in 1793 was 17 years old, so she was young. She lived in a family of middling economic status. She was born actually in 1776. Her father had been a carriage maker, so he was a skilled artisan. So her family wasn't poor. And in fact, she had connections and family roots in the area that were more impressive than what I'd like to say is I think it was easy for somebody like Henry Bedloe to underestimate Lana Sawyer. Her grandmother had been a property holder. Her grandmother had owned two houses before the revolution at a time when most New Yorkers were renters. And she was connected to, um, she had an aunt who was actually quite affluent and well-connected. So Lana was middling of a respectable status. Her father had died when she was young, when she was seven. And so she was living with a stepfather and a growing family of stepchildren. There was actually a young baby in the house in the fall of 1793. Mm. And what about our scoundrel? Henry Bedloe was born in 1767. He was 26 in 1793. At the time he was born, his parents had been trying to have a son for, for almost two decades, and they kept having, I feel bad about this because I've just been through my own risky pregnancy, um, but they kept having stillborn infants or infants that died shortly after birth. So when Henry was born, his father wrote in the family Bible, he wrote, may he live and grow up in holiness. And he got half of his wish. That <laughs> kid lived. But he was kind of your, he was your classic high federalist young blood. He also kind of, he was a character that was known in the 18th century as a rake. He never really applied himself. He didn't bother going to college or developing a profession. Kind of expected that his rich family would kind of hand him everything he needed. But then when he did get property or you know, money from his family, he blew through it. He was clearly charming because he was always convincing people to lend him money and then failing to pay it back. And he developed by 1793 a real reputation as a sexual predator. The word used then was rake. But even his attorneys acknowledged that he had this reputation as what they called politely a man of gallantry. Mm, a man of gallantry. How, what an interesting use of, of words. All right, so now we have our main characters. Oh, well, no, let's add Mother Carrie. So a key bit of the action in this story and a key character was Mother Carrie. Mother Carrie was a body housekeeper who had been living in the city for at least 10 years. Um, Probably she had been operating a brothel during the Revolutionary War. During the war, it was said that there were 20,000 people in the city and 2,000 of them were prostitutes. The city was occupied by the British military. So I spent a lot of time trying to understand the business of prostitution in this period and what motivated a woman like Mother Carey, who had who was running an illegal business. Prostitution itself was not illegal, but running a brothel was. 
And I found out, you know, relatively little about Mother Carey's previous life. I found out more about Mother Carey's afterlife. But she, we know she was on her second husband, that she had relatives living around the corner from her. Her brothel was right off of city, what's now City Hall Park in kind of a red light district at the time that was known as the Holy Ground, which was an ironic reference to the fact that this was the area defined by St. Paul's Chapel, which was one of the, that's actually one of the few buildings from 18th century Manhattan that's still there. And, and John, and just to just to clarify or reiterate the point that you were making, prostitution was legal in New York until I think 1914. The regulation concerned themselves with where it took place. In other words, you could do it in a home or some private residence, but you couldn't have a building that was in the business of prostitution. Yes. The logic was that, one, they just, in this period, they didn't regulate prostitution itself at all. But the problem was um, when your household was just, was became a nuisance, a public nuisance. So like, it's equivalent to modern, you know, nuisance laws. If you're playing loud music or whatever, people could complain about your house as a house of prostitution, as an immoral sanctuary, or allowing improper drinking was another way you could get into trouble. So Mother Carrie was running a business that everybody knew was a brothel. Everybody knew was illegal, but that everybody looked the other way at. Mm. And in general, people looked the other way at prostitution and brothels in this period, unless there was some problem, unless there was some scandal. So one of her jobs running her business was to avoid scandal, to avoid public problems that would draw attention, bad attention to her, her establishment. Okay, now let's go to the facts of our crime. So Lana Sawyer met Henry Bedlow right around this time of year. On a Sunday afternoon, she was walking down Broadway. And she attracted the attention of a group of Frenchmen who began, French sailors or gentlemen, who began catcalling her. And she shrank back. Um, and this gentleman's stranger interposed to, so, so quote unquote, rescue her. And he sent the Frenchmen on their way and he escorted her home. And by the end of that walk, which was like a five minute walk, he asked her if she would go out for a walk a couple of days later with him. So we asked her for a date and he introduced himself. He said, my name is Lawyer Smith. That was not his name, but he knew he had a bad reputation and he was trying to fly under her radar. Clearly in a city of 40,000 people, not everybody knows everybody else by sight, but he was clearly worried that she would know him by reputation. In any case, given the false name, she agreed to go out for a walk and the walk started out innocently. They went to enjoy a cup of ice cream, which was a novelty at the time, an expensive luxury. And then they went for a walk around the Battery, which had just been turned into a public park. It's hard to imagine, but they had just planted shade trees and graded it. And they spent a long time that evening on the Battery. But the evening that had started out innocently enough ended up with him dragging her, kicking and screaming, into Mother Carey's brothel. And then... Well, by that point, she knew that he wasn't who he said he was. She realized that this wasn't some nice lawyer Smith. This was Henry Bedlow, the sexual predator. And so what happened next is he assaulted her. He raped her. And she was trapped in that room. This was the back room of the brothel. And she was trapped there overnight. 
she wasn't able to make her escape until the next morning. So, John, both Bedlow and Mother Carrie would have every reason to believe that this young woman, who was a seamstress, would, like many other young women or women who have been sexually assaulted, would be ashamed, Mm -hmm. worry about their role, the shame on their family. They had every reason to believe that this was over, Bedlow left, Lana left a few, a couple hours later, and that would be the end of it. So after some protracted moving around the city, going to her cousin's house, et cetera, her stepfather, John Callahan, along with Lana, decides to bring rape charges. Mm-hmm. So the question that you addressed in the beginning comes back again now. Explain the circumstances that would have governed John Callahan being willing to do this. But what is it that you think gave Lana the courage? You know, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, the early feminist book, A Vindication of the Rights of Women, had just been published, would there be any reason to think Alana Sawyer would have been informed by that? What is it that gave her the courage to do this? Well, there are a couple things. I think you're absolutely right. A Vindication of the Rights of Women had been published just two years earlier and had been circulating in New York. In fact, a New York edition of Vindication, Mary Wollstonecraft's Vindication of the Rights of Women had just been published that spring, spring of 1793. And in fact, the Vindication of the Rights of Women was There were newspaper articles after the rape trial that specifically referenced Mary Wollstonecraft. So there was a feminist current in the air. I think there's two basic factors to me that it's three, maybe. (laughs) So one, I think Lana had a more, I think both Mother Carey and Henry Bedlow underestimated Lana Sawyer's background and her personality. So they saw her as unconnected and meek. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it's true today that something like 85% of acquaintance rape survivors don't make public reports or Mm. don't make official complaints. So there's plenty of good reason why one might think that filing a report would be disadvantageous and re-victimizing. So she had a family background, which I gestured at earlier. I think she also had just a personality that was unexpected. So there's a key moment where Lana has been sitting in the back room repairing her dress. And then she finally ventures out to go home. And Mother Carrie is waiting for her in the hallway. And it's this tiny, narrow, three-foot-wide hallway. And Mother Carrie says, don't worry, dearie. I can let you out the back door so no one will see you. And Lana says, no, I will go out the front door. Mm. I don't care who sees me, even if it's my father. So there's a kind of flash of anger and a willingness to stand up to herself at the moment when you might have expected her to be most, clearly Mother Carrie was trying to script her into a role of being shamed and silent. Mm. Lana was clearly terrified of going to see her father, her stepfather. 
She was afraid he would beat her up, but she orchestrated her return in a way that bought his confidence, that earned his confidence. And I think that's one thing we see in this is just that oh, time and again, Lana Sawyer was able to turn potential gatekeepers who might have said, let's keep this quiet, let's not move this prosecution forward. She was able to turn them into allies. And the first important one of those was her mother and then her, her stepfather. John, you have a paragraph in the book that I thought brilliantly described the challenge for any victim of an assault. And I'm going to, these are your words that I'm reading. So this is after Lana first had to describe the sequence of events to her cousin and then her mother. And the language that you use is putting what happened into words, pulling flashes of memory out of a flood of emotions would require taking what was interior, what was private, what was urgent and inchoate and unfathomable and producing instead a discrete set of events organized into a narrative. Because that's what Lana had to do time and time again. Could share with us how you filed rape charges in those days. So the process then was actually not that different from today, with the exception that in 1793, there was no police force in Manhattan. So you reported crimes to one of the magistrates, essentially the mayor or one of the aldermen. I mentioned one of Lana's relatives had been prominent and he, he had been an alderman. So she may have heard from him about this process. But you would first go to an alderman. What's most interesting about Lana Sawyer's stepfather's reaction, John Callanan's reaction, is that he took Lana first to confront Mother Carrie, who lied to his face unconvincingly, which ended up strengthening his confidence in Lana's story. And then he, John Callanan took Lana to a private attorney named Caleb Briggs. So Henry Bedloe's family ended up hiring a dream team of the best attorneys in the nation. Lana's stepfather could afford a new attorney just, just having passed the bar. Um, and one of the cool things, and he would have looked in the law books and listened to her story and kind of given them an evaluation of how worthwhile it would be to pursue um, a legal prosecution. They clearly were anxious about whether this case was strong enough to take public, and then they wanted to keep control of it, because that's one of the big issues now and then, is once you turn a rape complaint over to the police or over to prosecutors, you start losing control of your own prosecution. I actually happened to buy on eBay the exact copy of Blackstone's Commentaries on the English Law, which is the volume about rape, that Caleb Briggs owned in 1793. And it's, it's in fact the only artifact in existence I know of that mm. Lana was clearly in the room with this book. And since you're a bookseller, I'll just share that. <laughs> Careful, I might take it and sell it. <laughs> it's, you know, it was 50 bucks. No one else saw the value. So then after the attorney, they went to the mayor. The mayor believed her story. He conducted a little investigation and then referred to the attorney general. The attorney general referred to the grand jury. The grand jury referred to trial. So all of the end of that story I did quickly, but that's that's exactly what happens now in a criminal prosecution. Yeah, and without, you know, I'm going to be careful for our listeners to 
have them intrigued by the story and motivated to read it because the details that you bring to New York City, to the streets, to the characters is, you know, as I said in the intro, riveting. And I don't want people to miss it, but I do want to make sure we cover the narrative. So Mm -hmm. without giving away too much, the trial ends in an acquittal. Yes. Not surprisingly, but two unusual events occur. One is there's a series of riots. And the other is the availability of a second option, which is to bring civil charges under what were called, I love this name, the seduction laws. So let's talk about these surprising incidents in two pieces. What were the social and economic conditions that fueled those riots? Because that was pretty stunning. That's extraordinary. I'm sure you'll believe me when I tell you that I have looked for other parallels in early American history of a criminal trial that results in public protests like that, public outrage like that. I have, there's nothing. So this is a really extraordinary case. And it raises the question, the rioters were working men. Some said that 600 men gathered in the dark a week after the rape trial out front of Mother Carrie's house and proceeded to demolish it piece by piece. They left nothing in the morning except for some kindling wood and a pile of bed feathers because they they didn't steal anything. They destroyed the furniture and cut the beds, uh, feather beds open. So there was a huge cloud of bed feathers. So I think that that was a big question for me was there were some other people who were upset by the trial, other groups that made more sense. And I'll refer to them in a minute briefly. But for the working men, there was a lot of class tension and a lot of political tension in this period. This was a period when we, you know, we talk about political voting rights now, but this was a period in which working men in the city mostly could not vote because they didn't have enough property. You had to own a certain amount of property to vote. And the Federalist elite in charge of the city had a pretty arrogant and disparaging attitude towards the city's working men. And so I think they were becoming radicalized by the French Revolution and demanding a more democratic political order. And they saw this case as kind of a parable of this aristocratic gentleman, Henry Bedloe, taking advantage of a working class woman and then being allowed to get away with it by a jury that was mostly comprised of affluent merchants. And so I think they saw this through a lens of class grievance. One of the interesting aspects of this is that they vented their rage not against Henry Bedlow and his family. Bedlow fled the city, his family hired guards, some of the attorneys were worried that they would be attacked. But the rioters did not attack the men responsible for the situation. They attacked Mother Carey and they attacked other brothels run by women. So there's a way in which they blamed sexually disorderly woman for the problem. Mm, nothing new there. <laughs> no, it's fascinating. The other strain of outrage was um, fe- early feminists. And there grew an enormous newspaper debate. And there's both private correspondence from wives of one of the attorneys. One of the, one of the wives of one of the attorneys wrote letters to her husband saying that people are talking about this trial and they're not happy with your behavior. But more broadly, there was a whole newspaper debate and women spoke up and were interesting in the sense that they were making an argument that's familiar now from Title IX discussions about safe college campuses, arguing that 
the mayor shouldn't be so worried about preventing brothel riots. He should be worried about making the streets safe for women. So that was really fascinating, was the range of public opinion that became, that we normally wouldn't be able to access historically. We wouldn't see what was on people's minds, how they interpreted it, except that it came into this, these riots and into this newspaper debate. Now, tell us about these delicious seduction laws. <laughs> so the law of seduction in this period is crazy. The origin of seduction law, in fact, was master-servant law. And the idea was, Roxanne, that if you hired away my cook, I could then sue you for stealing my servant, seducing away my servant with whatever higher wages or promises of better treatment. The idea there is like, I own my servant. So in seduction suits, it becomes mostly, not exclusively, but mostly a patriarchal form of law in which a man can sue another man who has sex with one of the women in his household. So typically it's an unmarried daughter, sometimes it's a wife. And the idea is that the wife or the daughter is the servant of the household head, and that while she has been engaged in an affair or some kind of sexual relations with this other man, the patriarch has been deprived of the value of her domestic labor. So literally, it's like the pretense of the suit is that A, that Lana was a servant, and B, that the value of the work she would have done for John Callanan that night was some astronomical figure. They claimed 5,000 pounds, I think is what they asked for, which was a huge amount of money. That's like a rich person by Jane Austen novel standards. So What's interesting about seduction suits is they were recognized mostly up to Lana Sawyer's case as a mechanism for young women who had been misled by men into having sex and then gotten pregnant and ended up abandoned. There were a way for these women to get a little bit of recourse enough to pay for the costs of childbirth and early child support. Lana's case transformed the law of seduction into a punitive form of law that was determined to serve as a deterrent and make examples of men like Henry Bedloe for sexually harming women like Lana and damaging their reputation going forward. So it became more of a reputational harm than a practical harm. And again, without necessarily giving too much away, I was fascinated by Well, I I just want to clarify this part for our listeners. So the penalty under the seduction laws was monetary. Yes, it's a money damage. It's a money damage. And the is there an equivalent in the law today? I mean, what would be the modern version of seduction laws? Well, depends how good your memory is. These laws were so sexist that in the 70s, with the ERA and all, most states abolished their seduction laws because they were being forced to make them gender equal. But interestingly, the former Confederate states responded not by abolishing them, but by making them gender equal. And so the last seduction suit I've heard of in in North Carolina was when Elizabeth Edwards was separated from her husband, the presidential candidate, disgraced presidential candidate, John Edwards. Do you remember that? I do. And she threatened to sue his mistress, Riel, with alienation of affection, which is a form of 
the spousal equivalent of seduction law. So essentially, she threatened a, a seduction suit against her husband's mistress. Did that work? Did she win that? The threat worked. She got what she wanted. <laughs> okay. Well, good for her. So, John, the description of life that went on on the first and second floor of the debtor's prison and how long that that the time you were in jail was related to the size of your debt. But the bigger the debt, the more luxurious your accommodations, so to speak, were in the debtor's prison. Yeah, the debtor's prison was this hallucinatory world. Henry Bedlow ended up there because John Callanan had won this huge money judgment against him in the seduction suit, and then Bedlow refused to pay. And so Callanan decided, oh, I'll lock him up. I'll use the law to lock him up in debtor's prison. And today, debtor's prison makes no sense to anybody. They're like, well, how is he supposed to pay back a debt if he's trapped in debtor's prison? And people said that at the time, and this was kind of the end of debtor's prison within the next 10 years as an institution. But yes, it was a crazy world in which your petty debtors, your people owning tiny amounts of money, lived on the first floor in an open hall, and the people that owed more were up in the upstairs and bigger accommodations. <laughs> and the king of the debtor's prison during this period was William Dewar, who had been Hamilton's undersecretary of the treasury, who had caused this huge speculative bubble, which had caused a huge catastrophe for a lot of people in 1792 and caused a recession that was national. And he owed millions of dollars, an unfathomably huge amount of money then. And he lived in luxury and spent all of his time trying to do paperwork to get himself out. And people, you know, sent out for prostitutes and sent out for food and alcohol, which was they weren't <laughs> supposed to, and bribed the jailkeeper. Um, it was this crazy, crazy world. And the assumption John Callanan had was that Henry Bedloe's relatives would feel sorry for him and bail him out by paying off the legal judgment. And they didn't seem to feel very sorry for him because they did not bail him out. They hired an attorney for him, but that's all they did. But he had a very wealthy, there was a huge piece of land called Rutgers Farm right along the East River that his uncle, his mother's brother, had owned. And I think, well, I think from reading your book, he understood what a scoundrel Bedlow was and he wasn't about to start bailing him out. Yeah, Henry Bedlow spent a lot of his life assuming that his rich and unmarried and childless uncle Henry Rutgers, after whom Rutgers University is named, would leave him his, the bulk of his estate. And as it happens, most of Henry Bedlow's rich relatives ended up cutting him, carving him surgically out of their wills. The family was not sympathetic. John, what motivated you to write this story? Your work as a historian is proximate, but what was it about this story that motivated you to write a whole book about it? So, Roxanne, there were two big things that were motivating me 10 or 12 years ago when I decided to do this book. And the first was kind of technical. I wanted to learn how to write 
a narrative book. I wanted to learn how to write a book that told a story with characters who drove the action forward that would immerse readers in a scene. So I spent a lot of time in this book, writing this book, trying to help the readers visualize what the city looked like and what the sights and smells were, but most importantly, getting into the interior life of Lana and the other central characters and telling this as a story. So I learned a lot. That was very enriching for me to do that. The other part was that I was directing UNC's program in sexuality studies, and it seemed to me like the most urgent issue on campus was was sexual assault. And I was really frustrated that this had been such a pervasive problem for so long and had, it was so stubborn. It seemed it was so difficult to resolve. So I organized a working group with a lot of different people representing a wide range of disciplines around campus. And I began to see this story as a way of talking about or illuminating the origins of the problem, the origins of modern rape culture. What were the ramifications of these trials and charges? Did it change? Did it embolden more women? Did it in any way change how we think about it? Because what is disheartening in a way, is to think this was 1793, it's 2022, and many of these issues continue to exist. I mean, there was a very satisfying, in some regards, outcome, but the damage to Lana Sawyer, despite all of this, like for any sexual assault victim— is devastating. So did this trial change anything? And do you see progress? Well, I was raised at a time when we tended to think that historical progress moved in a positive direction, that things historically tended to get better. You know, in recent times, I'm not so sure that the direction of American history moves in terms of greater equality and freedom and justice. And this is in some ways an example of that happening in the 1790s. I think if Henry Bedloe had been convicted, and I think there was a lot, there were a lot of people in the courtroom who were surprised by the jury verdict of not guilty, and a lot of people who were really upset about it, I think that would have shifted the culture of sexual assault in law because his lawyers were very aggressive in trying to push and change the law and tell the jury this is what the law should be when they were just making. They were just making stuff up to see what would stick. And so the problem with this case is that it did stick. And they set a new example of how to attack a respectable plaintiff in a rape trial and how to get somebody with a really bad reputation who clearly was guilty. You know, the defense lawyers admitted he was guilty of a terrible crime that had harmed her terribly, but just that he didn't deserve to be hanged for it. It's a good example of what the philosopher Kate Mann calls empathy, which is the way To this day, trial attorneys focus on developing empathy among the jurors for the man charged while dismissing the victim as someone who doesn't matter. So I think the direction of change in rape law was negative. Mm -hmm. I think this was a setback in rape law that had substantial ramifications over a long period. I think the seduction suit was potentially more ambiguous and possibly could have been a better, more positive development. 
as a, as a model of providing accountability. And I don't think it fully functioned in that way mm. in the end. But I think there was a lot of possibility. I think one of the great things, exciting things about the 1790s is that it was a period, as you mentioned, of Mary Wollstonecraft and early feminism. It was a period of real, it was a period of basic debate over the future of the American political system. There was a lot in the air in the 1790s. So there was a lot of possibility. You study these issues and look at them contextually. So do you think the Me Too movement or other advances will result in a different environment around sexual assault charges? I think we should hope so. (laughs) I think there has been a lot of effort over the last 10 years to draw attention to the nature of the problem. I think, you know, on college campuses, it's really complicated these days because we've gone through different presidential administrations with different priorities, giving different instructions about how Title IX should be enforced, for example. I mean, the problem is obviously much bigger than college campuses. But I think a basic challenge is that we need, as a culture and a society, to take harms done to to young women in particular seriously and to recognize sexual harms as harms that matter, to recognize people that are assaulted as people that matter. And I think our culture tends to focus on the men, they tend to focus on celebrities, they tend to focus on the rich and powerful. And our culture tends to focus on what, you know, somebody like Harvey Weinstein has to lose, or Jeffrey Epstein has to lose, or, you know, Brett Kavanaugh has to lose, rather than what their victims have already lost. Mm. Yeah, they already lost. So, John, what do you hope a reader will take away after having read this book? I think different readers will take different things. I think any book that tells a story is a book that you read in order to inhabit a different person's experience, to learn, to practice empathy, to develop insight um, into other people's experiences and responses. So I think there's a kind of like a novel. I think this this book may Mm. offer that to some degree. It does read like a novel. To me, it's it totally read as a novel. And there's a lot of characters that we obviously wouldn't have the time to cover that really, really enhanced the entirety of the story. I mean, there's a piece about Alexander Hamilton that I don't remember being in the biography I read Can you give us a tiny version of the story? Alexander Hamilton represented Bedloe at one point in the seduction trial. Well, afterwards. So Bedloe's family hired Hamilton to get him out of debtor's prison. And I don't think we need to go into the details to say that, you know, one thing I hope people might get out of this book is that we often, readers often see this period through the eyes of the founding fathers. We get, you know, biographies of presidents and even Hamilton. And I really love the musical um, and admired Ron Chernow's biography. But this is not a biography of Alexander Hamilton. This is what Alexander Hamilton looks like from the eyes of a 17-year-old woman who has been victimized by his client. It's a story of Hamilton as a working lawyer, and it's not a pretty story. His behavior is, I mean, the tactics he uses to get Bedlow out of prison are, well, 
fraudulent, um, but also cruel. Uh, fraudulent and cruel, but fraudulent in a way that he had taken advantage of to get himself out of trouble from a congressional investigation that had taken place. So it's not like he was unfamiliar with the use of something cruel and fraudulent as a way to reach a different outcome that might seem just. Yeah, I think in in a basic way, Henry Bedlow and Alexandra Hamilton fed each other's darker natures. I think Mm. they encouraged each other in, in bad directions. So, John, I'd like to close with hearing more about the woman you dedicate your book to, because I was struck by the language that you use. Your book is dedicated to Elizabeth Wood Sweet, who taught you resilience. So tell us a little bit about this woman. So Elizabeth Wood Sweet was my mom. She was born in 1936 and died while I was writing this book in 2018. I I miss her a lot. She was a remarkable woman. She taught nursery school for many years. She ran a wonderful nursery school. She loved kids on her deathbed. You know, people kept asking about her job. You know, they rolled her into the hospital. She's dying. She rolls her into the hospital. She's greeting the doctors and asking about their children by name, children Mm -hmm. that she had taught 40 years earlier. And so she was, and, you know, people asked, how did, you know, how was your life teaching? She's like, I loved every day. I loved my life every day. Mm. And she didn't have the easiest life. She had a very stern, controlling father, who I I think was a good man. But, you know, when he died, he instructed my cousin to shoot his dog and bury his dog with him. And (laughs) I was like, so what did you do? I asked my cousin. My cousin's like, I shot the dog. Anyway, (laughs) she wanted to go to UNC or Pembroke, which is now Brown. And he made her go to Baylor, a conservative Baptist school in Waco, Texas. She married my father who, you know, was at the time, 1960, 58, handsome, rich, promising, and turned out to, you know, never bother really to earn a living. And he was really a violent man. So she had a difficult marriage, but she always accentuated the positive. One of my favorite moments of my mother, I'll give you one vignette of my mother. My husband and I were vacationing with her on Cape Cod, and we went up to swim at Herring Cove Beach on the just north of Provincetown. And the water there is cold. You've just been down from Maine, so it's colder there, but <laughs> it's cold. And it was too cold for me to get into the water. But mom is out, looks like a seal. She's out 200 yards in the water. All you can see is her sun hat <laughs> floating around. She looks like a seal. And she came in and I asked her, mom, how can you stand this freezing water? You look happy as a clam out there. And she's like, you know, when I moved to New England, whatever it was, 50 years ago, you know, I'd grown up swimming in the ocean in Hawaii and I love swimming in the ocean. And I realized that if I wanted to keep swimming in the ocean, I was going to have to learn how to swim in a cold ocean. Mm. So I learned how to swim in a cold ocean. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. And particularly thank you for sharing the story of Lana Sawyer. I do hope, as I said earlier, that our listeners will indulge in the whole story because you do bring a dramatic, fast-paced sweep to it that 
you know, I read it a bit ago and it just sticks in my mind. It sticks in my mind from the standpoint of the history, of the circumstances about, you know, does the arc of time bend towards justice or does it bend away? But in particular, exactly what you said, we often think of these times in the context of the founding fathers. This is this is what real life looked like day to day. And, you know, as a New Yorker reading about the streets and, you know, I was studying the maps about what buildings uh, were there and you've just done an exquisite job. And, you know, I think a lot about resurrecting the history and the story of ordinary people is important for us to even look around in a different way about those that are living lives around us that might not look as visible as some of the stories we see in magazines and newspapers. And I think that's just what you do for Lana Sawyer and her father and those that helped her in the book. So thank you very much, John, for joining us, but mostly thank you for writing The Sewing Girl's Tale. Well, thank you so much, Roxanne. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening. 